This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for February 2nd, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by our Associate Editor, Cliff Rosen. Cliff is an endocrinologist and researcher at the Maine Medical Center, where he leads the Center for Clinical and Translational Research. He was recently awarded an NIH grant as part of the RECOVER initiative, a large NIH-funded multi-center consortium that aims to understand and learn how to treat and prevent the post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, including long COVID. Today, we'd like to talk about these longer-term issues, and Cliff, we really appreciate your expertise in this area. Before we start, I'll acknowledge the fact that questions around long COVID and other sequelae are a work in progress. In fact, I'm not sure there's yet a case definition. So Cliff, how do you start a research program when you're still defining the problem? Steve, thanks for having me. Thanks to Eric and Lindsay. So it's a great question and one that we spent six months trying to figure out what we were trying to do when Congress appropriated the money for this initiative. So we spent six months with a group of 50 investigators around the country talking about what our protocol would be and how to do it. And it was clear that we could really not predefine PASC or long COVID, post-acute sequelae of COVID, but rather under the direction of the NIH in particular, there was a strong focus on letting patients tell us what the syndrome is through interviews, blood work, x-rays, CTs, MR, sleep studies, wearables, and a whole host of surveys. And the basic message was, we need to define long COVID or PASC and how it develops rather than starting out with a predefined idea of what it was. So in the end, we really tried to avoid any bias and say, let's hear what people have to say, let's hear what they're talking about, and then what the objective measures look like. And from there, we could go on to really look at what the pathobiology is and potentially the treatment. So there are a number of different symptoms associated with this post-COVID complex. And in our long COVID clinic, which is extremely busy, and I'm sure it's true around the country, the three things that stick out to us are brain fog, anxiety, and shortness of breath. So it's a host of symptoms that cover a wide array of tissues that are potentially damaged. One of the biggest challenges though, is we needed a control group because we were clear that a lot of these symptoms can occur in patients who walk in for other reasons and that we needed to try to tease out what the particular aspects of long COVID were. So the way we did this, and this was a group effort headed by NYU, which was funded to coordinate the study, was we embedded a system for newly recruited infected individuals, those who had just gotten COVID, those who previously had a documented COVID infection that is as far back even as March of 2020. And then those who entered the, into the study but were COVID negative. And then after we collected data for four years and did blood work on a quarterly basis, and some of those individuals went on to get more complex tests, we were then able to think about what was the pathobiology behind the long COVID. So we really don't know all the etiologic factors, but there are some risk factors. Obesity and diabetes stick out as being major risk factors. And of course, the pulmonary complications of acute COVID infection clearly can lead to longstanding morbidity. 
So it's a discovery process. And at the same time, a chance to really start to look at some of the ongoing data. And one of the things that's embedded within this study is these triggers that occur when individuals fill out their symptom complex questionnaires. And those triggers then allow for that individual to enter into what we call tier two or tier three, where more complicated studies are involved. Cliff, I know you started off by saying that there's no definition, but I just wanted to understand what you meant by a couple of the terms that you use. Uh, PASC, uh, what does that stand for? And how does that differ from the more colloquial long COVID? So PASC is the NIH coined term for post-acute sequelae of COVID, P-A-S-C. And it is equivalent to long COVID. I think there's a lot of resistance to using the term long COVID scientifically. Although this is a term that everybody has grabbed onto and we use it interchangeably. So I don't think there really is any difference. So Cliff, I think there are many challenges here as you are helping frame the issue. When does long COVID begin? I mean, how do you understand a starting point? So that's a great question. And it's a key question down the road as well for a couple of reasons. So what was established was that you have an index date in which you had a COVID positive test. Anything beyond four weeks after that is what our working definition of what symptomatology would suggest long COVID. The problem is, you know, Lindsay and Eric very well, is individuals can get reinfected, negative controls can be now positive, So this is a moving target, and we really have not been able to decide how to deal with that other than redesigning the red cap entry form so that we can put in reinfection and date of reinfection. But that's a critical question about the timing. And is it a continuum of their initial illness, or is it a new set of symptoms that begin sometime after four weeks from diagnosis? I think it could be both. I think there's some people that don't recover at all. We have a physician in our group that got long COVID. I mean, initially he had a mild to moderate infection, did fine. A month later, he came down with this brainy fog issue and started to get a dizziness and vertigo, which are another symptom complex we see and decrease in concentration ability. So there was an interval period where he was perfectly fine. And we see that. We also see individuals that have a continuum of symptoms that just don't go away. So it's really complex. With all of this, do we have a sense of how commonly patients suffer from these post-acute sequelae? So that's a great question, and everybody's trying to figure that out. And I think that's part of the goal of the Recover Project is to try to nail down what the prevalence of this condition is. You know, the estimates are between 10 and 50%. And there's some preliminary data that it's around 20 to 25%. So in the recover initiative, what happens is if the individuals fill out this symptom complex, it's a 20 page evaluation. And some of those symptoms come up like dyspnea or brain fog. They then are triggered into a tier two where they get more sophisticated neuro testing and pulmonary function testing. And based on that, we had projected 25 to 30% of those individuals would trigger 
that kind of symptom complex, but it's actually turning out to be much more than that. So if you look on social media, the number of groups that have informally formed that are sort of long COVID support groups are in the 50 to 75,000 range just on social media. So there's a real disconnect between what people are talking about and what the scientists are saying might be the prevalence. So we don't know the answer, but I suspect it's somewhere in the 20 to 30% range. The way you describe the study, Cliff, is interesting. A 20-page questionnaire isn't everybody's cup of tea. Does that mean that you're selecting for particular patients who are likely to want to participate? And are they going to be representative of the overall population? Yeah. So we've really cut back quite a bit, and I probably exaggerated a bit at 20. It's probably closer to 15. But on a computer-based system, we watched how our people did. And most of the people were able to complete very simple questions within 25 to 40 minutes. So not too bad. And the level of education is reasonable for almost any individual. It's translated into Spanish. So I think we were initially skeptical, but I think it's actually worked out pretty well. And that could be the easiest part of the study, the questionnaire. But that was a big question. And the other question in the issue that we're still dealing with, and it's unclear whether we'll get there, is are we getting to underrepresented populations? Because the people who have come in that have heard about the study, have seen it on the NIH webpage, have been mostly people who you know have heard about it on NPR or read about it on the web. And we really have to reach those underserved groups. And I think that's a challenge for us. Uh, there's distrust, obviously, in healthcare and research. And we found that hospitalized patients, particularly now, the unvaccinated are much more reluctant to think about participating in a research study. So I think there's going to be some selection bias, and we have to try to overcome that. One of the difficult aspects of describing syndromes is that for an illness that affects millions of people, there are probably many different syndromes hidden in a single name. For example, patients on the most severe end of the spectrum may well have many of the same persistent issues as those who have extended times in the ICU on ventilatory support. So is there a way of trying to identify subgroups of patients who probably have different causes of these same symptoms? Right. So that's a great question. And we've struggled with that because it's clear that post-respirator care and post-ICU individuals will continue to have significant comorbidities and complex symptomatology. So the way NIH and NYU has designed it is they're trying to limit our recruitment of those individuals to about 20% of the total recruitment. So all hospitalized patients, there's a finite limit on who we can recruit from that group, with the idea being that there is going to be a subset of individuals that are post-ICU that clearly have long-term symptoms, some pulmonary, some diabetes, for example, after getting treated with steroids, et cetera. And they may be very different from the group that is acute infected. So one of the things we learned in this epidemic has just really thrown us many, many curveballs. But one of the things that we have learned from this is that the individuals that we most want to recruit are those that within 28 days have had an acute COVID positive test by PCR, and that those individuals are to be followed over that four-year period. 
because those are the ones that are probably going to give us the most information. What percentage of those individuals that had an acute infection really go on to develop the symptoms? So we have one group, which is hospitalized patients. We have a second group, which is the acute SARS-CoV-2 infected patients. And then we have a third group, which is the historically positive patients who have gone on to develop long COVID. And within that group, that's part of the group that we see and hear about in social media quite a bit. And so those individuals, we obviously want to include and we want to do as much as we can for them in terms of research. So those have to be a part of the mix. And then what's been somewhat successful on our site is to recruit healthcare workers that have been tested frequently, particularly those who are negative, because then we can follow those individuals as controls. And those remain really important components of Recover the Control Group, because we need to understand what symptoms really arise from the infection versus the stress of this whole pandemic and all the other complicating factors. So Cliff, I think you highlight many of the complexities. And I think the control group is one of the most complicated aspects because someone who spends a month in the ICU without COVID often has prolonged symptomatology associated with the severity of illness and the associated care. Same thing with those individuals who may be hospitalized for a period of time versus those who have COVID in the outpatient or have serologic COVID without knowing they had an illness, let alone their background risk factors or conditions. So it does sound like you may have to have multiple control groups, you know, and then the symptomatology that they develop will need to have an understanding based upon the kind of illness they had and then what their control group is. Yeah, that's exactly right, Lindsay. And there is one sort of caveat to what I described, and that is the C4 epidemiology group at Columbia also has historic controls that are negative that have subsequently turned positive. And they are going back to retrospectively analyze those individuals and follow them longitudinally. So we will have a group of individuals that are negative, then turn positive, And there's a symptom complex associated with those individuals pre-COVID versus post-COVID. So we're hopeful that that is one of the multiple controls, but you're absolutely right. And I think that's what makes this so complex. It looks simple on paper. We're gonna do a longitudinal follow-up for four years of individuals that have had SARS-CoV-2 infections. And it turns out to be extremely complex. And that's why the design is somewhat adaptive. And we're trying to change as we go along to try to configure, for example, you know, we have no idea about the difference in strains, substrains, and how they affect the development of long COVID. We're happy to add extra controls for you, Cliff. But one that strikes me is that there are sort of vague and very well-characterized post-viral syndromes associated with other viruses, ranging from very specific things like encephalitides to the sort of nonspecific symptoms, which can resemble those of past. Is this group represented people with other infections who have not been in the ICU? We don't know. I mean, we have not really set up a system to query individuals for that. But for example, Epstein-Barr virus, we do have serum saved and biobanked to ask that question in particular. 
So I think it's not embedded within the questionnaires and we don't really know whether there's been post-viral infections or viral infections that may have contributed. So I think that's a good point. It's a tricky situation in terms of trying to understand that. But I think the one thing about Recover that is good is that we have a huge biobank of biospecimens accumulating now at the Mayo Clinic. And so NIH has opened up a new initiative to address some of the pathobiology, things that you had alluded to, Eric. So there are currently grants submitted to look at what is in the biospecimen repository, how T-cells function, you know, what previous infections there were, what metabolic complications. So I think NIH has opened up an initiative to sort of address the more direct etiologic factors that may contribute. We don't know about that currently. So Cliff, do you have more to say about how the study works? I did want to say that, you know, we're only one part of the Recover Initiative. I want to make it clear that the Recover Initiative is very broad. So we're doing the adult cohort study, which is almost 80,000 individuals across the country. There's also the 20,000 children initiative where they're looking at PASC in children who have had positive cases. And then there's a large EHR study at three centers that will combine data from the EHR for millions of people to try to look at symptom complex and development. And then there's an autopsy series as well to look at individuals who have died from COVID or associated comorbidities and what that complex looks like post-infection. So it's a huge initiative. It's got many wheels that are turning. And, you know, I think I've outlined, at least in the adult cohort, how things are processed. They're entered in, they fill out the questionnaires, they get their blood work. And then if their symptom complex or their blood work triggers something automatically, those individuals come back for tier two evaluation, a little more sophisticated testing. And then a very subgroup proportion will actually go on to the complex testing of tier three, which will be well less than 5%, we suspect, where they'll get colonoscopy or cardiac MRI or more complicated pulmonary studies, depending on their symptom complex. So it's a tiered system. And again, it's an adaptive design. So we hope to move with the differences that are happening with this infectivity, et cetera. The tiered design seems very important. And I think implicit in many of your comments, Cliff, are the temporal element and the strain element, where if one is concerned about long COVID associated with Omicron, for example, Omicron is just under three months old. So the ability to even assess for long COVID associated with it just on a time factor alone is quite limited, as opposed to Delta or going backwards to Beta and the initial strain. So I think that that becomes another complexity as the timing of the variant with the amount of time for long COVID to potentially manifest itself and your ability to tease that out. I agree. And I think, you know, one of our biggest challenges is getting those asymptomatic, positively infected Omicron cases, because that will help us immensely. But finding those people and getting them is really another challenge. So Cliff, can you describe how the Recover Initiative is structured and what's your center doing as part of it? So it's structured in such a way that there is this 
I would say, requirement for recruiting from all three pools or four pools of individuals. Our center, I'm the PI for this multi-center embedded consortium of 11 states in Puerto Rico. It's called the I-Score Network. Is actually charged with trying to recruit more underserved individuals. So, for example, there is embedded within the Recover Initiative a subsequent initiative to recruit from rural areas, trying to associate or determine whether people in rural communities that are underserved from a healthcare point of view have a difference in the development of long COVID. And also, Native Americans, Pacific Islanders, and African-American and Hispanics. So our target has been a much larger proportion of underrepresented minorities. And so we have a community advisory board that's advising us about how we can get into those communities and listen to what they have to say and eventually get some of those to participate. So that's one of the unique aspects of our 11-state consortium that's headed by myself and Sally Hodder at West Virginia University. The design, though, pretty much sticks to what NYU and NIH has established, and that is recruiting individuals in those four sort of slots and then following them over four years. And so the way we've done it is we initially had a piece on public radio and then people called in. We have a long COVID clinic that's very busy, but because of the design of the study, We're actually not recruiting from the long COVID clinic, but we're offering people an opportunity to participate if they've come through the clinic, but we don't recruit in that clinic. And so what we're really looking for are the acute newly infected individuals that we can follow longitudinally for four years. And that's pretty much how every site is conducting their study. With an accent on what Lindsay said, the temporal development and the fact that we'd like to get from the initial date of infection, what happens? Because I think that's the richest group, but it's complicated. And certainly the long COVID individuals are persistent in their symptomatology and their degree of impairment in activities of daily living. And so we need to capture that as well. So Cliff, I'd like to amplify and explore a bit the equity issue that you raised, because I think that the platforms upon which clinical research can sit have changed in the last 20 years, 10 years, and even two years. And the ability to have questionnaires that can be done electronically is very attractive because it means those who can't commute or those who are in rural areas can now be engaged. But it does mean that they have to have access to technology, the internet, smart devices, and an understanding of how to use them in the ways in which the research is designed. How have you been overcoming that sort of paradox? So that's a really great question. And particularly in Maine and West Virginia, that's a huge issue for us. And we are starting to learn some lessons from RADx. We've participated in the RADx up and what we're hearing both in urban centers where we have a large immigrant population from West Africa is they do not have access to the internet. In the rural areas, Maine still has areas that are totally uncovered. So providing iPads to individuals is one strategy, but they need to have the network 
And I think that's something that with the Build Back Better or with the proposal that was funded through the government, we have started to see resources being applied for internet access in rural areas. It's a huge challenge. I agree with you. And I think that we have had that difficulty for quite some time. So it's a major challenge for us. We just recently had a couple that drove an hour and a half from an area that did not have internet. And they heard about it. I'm not sure how, but they came down and they did all their forms online. And then they told us later and said, you know, it'd be really nice if we could do this through a system that we didn't have to drive two hours. And so we're trying to understand how best to accommodate people like that. Recently infected, really volunteering, just saying this is really important. We don't have long COVID, but we really want to help people understand So it's a challenge, Lindsay, and getting those rural individuals is really difficult in the state of Maine. But that's what we're charged with doing, and we're thinking about strategies to do that. We have DocuSign, and we have ways to do informed consent electronically and to allow these individuals to do their questionnaires remotely if they have internet access. And I think it's not just an issue for rural jurisdictions, but also inner city where it may take an hour and a half to take public transportation to and from a medical center. And so I think that these types of technologies, if we as a community can figure out how to deploy them wisely, can enable access more broadly to investigation and state-of-the-art science, uh, as well as care. And I think it's something that can really enhance inclusion and equitable research and care if we're able to better establish how best to do it across all the domains that we underserve. No, I agree completely. And we've already had a number of people that we entered into the study. And when I talk to them or listen to them, these are the group of people that you would normally expect to be in clinical trials. And these are not the people that we want. Um, I mean, we obviously want everybody, but we do want to reach out. One of the most common questions that physicians have been getting is whether the less severe disease that we see in vaccine recipients means that they have a lower risk of persistent symptoms. Is there any evidence that might answer that question? There's no evidence, Steve. We just don't know. And it's really unclear to us what happens to those individuals long term. And again, those are the people we're looking for. A recent positive test with vaccination twice and or booster to try to follow them longitudinally and see if there is a symptom complex. So I'm not aware of any data. And as Lindsay pointed out, particularly with this widespread infection with Omicron, it's so early in the game that we really have no understanding of whether that complex could occur or if it's milder. And then the mixture is that you have an infection that is relatively mild to begin with. So does that contribute to less likelihood of developing the infection? Uh, One of the things we've proposed is looking at adipose tissue and seeing if the virus can actually be sequestered within fat tissue. There's some preliminary data from one study that's in preprint that suggests that the virus can hide out there. And so as part of this new initiative, we're interested in trying to understand whether that viral persistence, whether it be Omicron or Delta, actually does have some contributing factor in the overall symptom complex. And we just don't know that yet. 
Cliff, one of the issues that people have raised is the idea that getting COVID might be a good thing as it protects you against subsequent infection, at least to some extent, and that it heads us toward herd immunity. I just wonder what your views are on the risks there. Young, healthy people tend not to get very severe disease, although they can. But what about the long COVID issue? How worried should we be about that? Well, that's a great question. And I don't know the answer because I think, as I mentioned, with the virus changing and mutating and this degree of symptomatology changing, we don't have a true understanding of what that might represent down the road. I can only say that the people we've talked to in long COVID clinic and the people that we've interviewed who have entered into the study, some of those individuals have had mild infections and yet have gone on to develop symptom complex that are quite worrisome. Whether it's cause and effect, we don't know. There's a background of issues that could complicate that in some individuals, but in other individuals, it's very clear that they were well until they got this infection and then they start to develop symptoms. So my sense is that we should still be concerned that getting COVID itself is not something that's desirable and that the vaccines actually provide the best sort of immunity. Now, whether they prevent long COVID, we have no idea. But the concept that, oh, well, natural immunity, no problem but we're seeing these long symptomatologies that are occurring that we are concerned about. So I don't think it's a good thing. I know it's out there that people get it and they're protected, but are they really? And is there a latency period at which time they then develop a symptom complex that you've talked about, Eric, that occurs with other viral infections? And I recently had a person close to us who was a healthy skier, athlete, who vaccinated and had the booster and got acute COVID. And because of some baseline reactive airway disease, that person got really sick. And so saying, oh, well, everybody's going to get COVID, no big deal, because of Omicron, I think is a mistake. So Cliff, I think that you've raised many challenging issues associated with the disease and process and a syndrome we're still defining. I think it is terrific to hear all the work that's going on to help us understand what may be associated with long COVID, what may not be, and then strategies should emerge on how to ameliorate it. So as Robert Frost said, miles to go before we sleep. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric. And Cliff, thank you very much for joining us today.